died 10,000 deaths over the last several generations. And so what I want to do this morning is try and clarify a few things about the gospel. Because we hear it all the time, but what are its implications? Paul tells us in Romans 1.16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And why would he say that? Why would anybody be ashamed of this message? Why are we ashamed of it sometimes? What is it about this gospel message that inhibits us from proclaiming it? It's because there is an element of judgment involved. It is good news to those who accept it, but it's bad news to those who reject it. But why was Paul not ashamed, and why should we not be ashamed? Because he goes on to say that it is the power of God into salvation. And that's what I want to try and speak this morning. I'll try and cover three main points. Number one, what is the gospel? What do we mean when using this term? What does it look like? Number two, why is the gospel important? Why is it relevant? Why do we need it? And number three, how is the gospel applied in our lives? So if there's ever a message we need to get right, it is this. What is the gospel? It is the central element in the Christian faith. And I like how Cody started his sermon off a few weeks ago by asking, what is it about Christianity and the Christian worldview that attracts you? What draws you towards it? Something has to be or else you wouldn't be here. And if it's not the gospel message, then you should probably take a step back and look again at what it's all about. Because the gospel is the most incredible, mind-blowing, and life-changing message we can ever wrap our heads around. It flips the script on how we perceive ourselves, the culture, and the world around us. As you've probably heard it quoted before, the gospel is like a pool in which, an elephant, in which a toddler can wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple enough for a child to understand, but profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. But as we see throughout the scriptures, it's not something that we can purely understand and grasp for ourselves. It must be revealed to us. But before we get started, let me begin by telling you what the gospel is not. It is not a happy and go lucky, successful life. It is not that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. The gospel is not that I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. It is not that I can have my sins forgiven. It is not prosperity. It is not your personal testimony. And it's not what God can do for you. It's not purpose and meaning for your life. All of this is true to an extent, but it's not the gospel. The gospel has specific content. The gospel is the good news and the person of Jesus Christ. There's no gospel without atonement. There's no gospel without resurrection. The gospel is about Jesus, who he is and what he did. You see, every other religion offers advice and what to do, but the gospel is news. It's an announcement. And that news is God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we cannot achieve for ourselves. Jesus lived the life we should live. He also paid the penalty we owe for the rebellious life we do live. And he did this in our place. 
We are not reconciled to God through our efforts and our record, as in all other religions, but through his efforts and his record. Christians who trust in Christ for their acceptance in God are, at the same time, we are sinful, yet we are accepted. I love how Tim Keller puts it. We are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. So what the gospel is, according to the scriptures, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, who he is, what he has done, his life of perfect obedience, sinlessness, his substitutionary atonement, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his promise of return. This is also why we refer to the first four books of the New Testament as the Gospels, because they contain the good news about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But that does not mean the Gospel can't be found throughout the Bible. In fact, it's found on every page throughout the Scriptures, because Luke 24, 27 says, Jesus himself interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And I used to wonder what that meant. What did that look like? How is Jesus in the gospel displayed throughout the entire Bible? Let me give you a few examples. One commentator put it like this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all of the comfort and familiar home and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered by his father, but sacrificed by his father. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betray him. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk losing his life, but it cost him his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm and the deep so that we can be brought in. Jesus is the true and better prophet. He's the true and better priest, the true and better king. He's the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And he goes on and on. And so you see, the Bible is not about us and what we have to do. The Bible is about him and our desperate need for a savior. Now, before we go any further, let's read today's text. We've got an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. And we're going to start right now with reading Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, of all references in Scripture regarding the gospel, why this passage? Because if you understand what happens in Genesis 15, then you're at the heart of what the Bible and the gospel is all about. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. But Abraham says, how do I know? How can I be sure? That sounds like us, right? How can I know? So God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill some animals cut the animals in pieces, and arrange the pieces in two rows with an aisle in the middle so that you can walk through them. Now today you and I are pretty confused by that. But Abraham wasn't, because in those days when a great lord wanted to make a covenant with a peasant or a lesser servant, that's how it was done. Animals were slain, the pieces were arranged, and when the servant took the oath of loyalty to the Lord... The servant did so as he walked between the pieces. Why? He was acting out the curse of the covenant. He was saying, I swear loyalty to you, Lord. And if I do not keep my promise, may I be cut into pieces like this. So Abraham figured he was arranging a situation for a covenant ceremony. And so he cut the pieces up. And he expected that he would be called to walk through the pieces. Because lords never walk through them. So he waited, and he waited, and then all of a sudden, Genesis 15 tells us, incredible darkness came down. It was the darkness of judgment, and in the midst of the darkness, God. 
He appeared as a smoking pillar of fire, just like at Mount Sinai later on. And he passed through the pieces as he promised to bless Abraham. Now Abraham was startled, and so should we when we try to come to grips with this passage. Because what this means is that God is not just saying, I will bless you. He's promising to die if he doesn't bless him. He's promising to be torn to pieces if he doesn't bless Abraham. And that's amazing. But that's not all. Abraham had two shocks. The first shock was that God went through the pieces. The second shock was that Abraham was never called to go through the pieces himself. The ceremony ended. And we're told in verse 18, God made a covenant with Abraham. But this was unheard of. It was amazing for the Lord to come and walk through the pieces, but for the servant not to even make the oath. Abraham knew what it meant, but he didn't see how it could be. It meant God was making the promise for both of them. He was taking the curse of the covenant on for both of them. He's saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn to pieces if you don't. God is saying to Abraham and to all of us, I will bless you no matter what. Even if it means that my own immortality becomes mortal. Even if my glory must be drowned into darkness. Even if I have to literally be torn to pieces. And he was. Because centuries later, darkness came down on Mount Calvary. Thick darkness. And in the midst of that darkness was God in the person of Jesus Christ. He was literally being torn to pieces. Nails, spears, thorns. Why? He was taking the covenant curse. You see, it's the cross of Jesus Christ that brings everything together. The cross is the apex, the defining moment in history where God's wrath and love, mercy and justice meet. It's the only way we sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. And it's Paul who says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us all through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, this is how God can be both just and justifier to those who believe. And this is the ultimate blend of law and love. And how so? How can this be? Because on the cross, Jesus absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you. With his perfect life, Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant and he earned the blessing. But with the sacrificial death, he completely fulfilled the curse of the covenant, and that leaves the blessing for us. Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that we could be received. And that's incredible. You can't make this up. Now let's fast forward to Romans, where in the first few chapters, Paul connects the dots of God and Abraham's relationship and how it's now appropriated to us. We're going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, why is the gospel important? Ultimately, because Romans 1 tells us it is God's gospel. It is the power of God into salvation. The gospel begins and ends with God. It is, completely centered around, it is completely centered around God. It's not a means to an end. If you accept the gospel, it's not to get stuff and to prosper. No, we come to, we come to the gospel, we come to God to get God, not prosperity. But if we have a small view of God, we will have a small view of the gospel. And if you hold a man-centered perspective of sin and God, then of course you would think that you can earn your salvation. And that the sins we commit aren't that bad. Or even have the mindset that we can do whatever we want because God's going to forgive us no matter what. That's his job, right? But here's the thing. God has not changed his mind about sin. He is holy and just and we are not. And in order for God to be just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Well, you might ask, how can a loving God let good and nice people go to hell forever? Well, think of it this way. The severity of sin is determined by who the sin is committed against. For example, if you walk up and punch somebody on the street today, chances are you're probably not going to face any real consequences other than a punch back. But if you walk up and punch the Secretary of Defense or our President right in the face, chances are you're going to jail. You're going to be facing some serious consequences. So the question is not how can a loving God let good and nice people go to hell. It's the exact opposite. How can God be just and let rebels into heaven? Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how can a just God be merciful to us sinners? How can God express his holy justice without condemning us in our sin? How can God give us salvation when his justice necessitates our condemnation? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is totally unique in being able to reconcile sinners. As I already mentioned, it is Jesus and his cross where God's wrath and love, justice and mercy meet. The cross is the climax of the gospel message. We see sorrow yet joy. Hopelessness yet hope, poverty yet wealth, suffering yet salvation, death yet life. All of it comes together at the, gospel, at the cross. It is totally unique to anything else in the history of the world. This is how a holy and just God made a way for mankind to be reconciled to him. 
God came down to us to bring us to himself. Again, this is unlike any other religion, any other type of teaching. Jesus is God in the flesh, descended from on high, came to earth, tempted as we are, and lived a sinless, perfect life and perfect obedience to the Father. He had no sin to be punished for or to die for, yet he died. And for what reason? He died in our place as a substitute for us. So therefore, he is both just and the justifier. So put it all together. The beauty of the cross of Christ in light of all that we've been talking about is that God in the flesh experienced the full judgment of sin during the fall, during the full judgment of sin. He enabled salvation for us sinners. Is he just towards sin? Absolutely. Look at the cross. Is he merciful towards sinners? Yes, look at the cross. He lived the life that we des- he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we all deserve. He conquered our enemy of sin and death and then ascended into heaven and, now, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high, ruling and reigning for us as we now await the consummation of his kingdom. So what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus has accomplished all of this on our behalf. And what are we to do? How are we to become part of this family of God? Look what it says in verses 24 and 25 and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Grace is the foundation, and faith is the means by which God saves people. And you ask, why faith? Why not love or joy or something else? And it's because faith is the anti-work. There's nothing we can do but put our trust in that which has been done for us. It's the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. Which is why Paul tells us in Ephesians, it is not of our own doing or accomplishments, but rather it is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift we receive. It is not a prize that we earn. And we receive it by faith. Now, to my last point, how is the gospel applied in our lives? And this is where I fail miserably, and I have to preach the gospel to myself daily. Because we modern people like to believe that the problem is external, it's outside of us, and that we can dig deep within us to fix it. But that's opposite of what the Bible teaches us. That's opposite of the gospel. Because scripture says the problem is within us and we have to go outside of us for our salvation as we cling to Christ. So remember the gospel is news about what God has done to reach us. It's not advice about what we must do to reach God. He calls us, we don't call him. And without this unique understanding of grace salvation, religions have to paint God as either a demanding holy God who is pleased by backbreaking moral effort, or is what C.S. Lewis calls a senile old benevolence who tolerates everyone no matter how they live. The problem is that if I think I have a relationship with God because I am living morally 
according to his standards. It doesn't move me or transform us because I earned it. On the other hand, if I think I have a relationship with God because he just embraces us all no matter what, that also doesn't change us because we're not transformed from the inside. In the effort to take away the idea of Christ's substitutionary atonement and replace it with the moralism robs the gospel of its power to change us from the inside out. Therefore, the gospel is radically different from religion. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. So the gospel differs from both religion and irreligion. Not only can you seek to be your own Lord and Savior by breaking the law of God through irreligion, you can also do so by keeping the law in order to earn your salvation through religion. And this lack of deep belief in the gospel is the main cause of spiritual deadness, fear, and pride in Christians. Because we continue to act on the basis of, I obey, therefore I am accepted. So if we fail to forgive others, that is not simply a lack of obedience, but a failure to believe that we are saved by grace too. If we lie in order to cover up a mistake, that's not simply a lack of obedience, but a failure to find our acceptance in God rather than human approval. So we don't get saved by believing the gospel and then grow by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. Believing the gospel is not only the way to meet God, but it's also the way we grow in him. The gospel is not just a truth that we affirm with our minds, but it's also a reality that we must experience. So just think of his costly grace. Think of that grace until you are changed into a generous people by the gospel. So the solution to stinginess is just reflecting on the generosity of Christ in the gospel. Where he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Now you don't have to envy others. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a status that is unmatched. One that money cannot buy. What makes you a sexually faithful spouse? A generous, not greedy person. A good parent or child is not just an effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it's deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding makes in our lives. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our identity, our view of the world. And so just being compliant to rules without heart change is just superficial and fleeting. Whereas on the other hand, the gospel changes your heart. It's the good news of the new world coming. The plot line of the Bible is this. God created the world. The world and humanity fell into sin and decay. But God sent his son to redeem the world and create a new humanity. And eventually the whole world will be renewed. Death, decay, injustice, suffering will all be removed. The gospel is not just about individual happiness and fulfillment. It's not just a wonderful plan for my life, but a wonderful plan for the world. It's about the coming of God's kingdom to renew everything. 
Christ wins our salvation through losing, achieves power through weakness and service, and comes to wealth by giving all away. And those who receive this salvation are not the strong and accomplished, but those who admit that they are weak and lost. And this pattern creates an alternate kingdom in which there is a complete reversal of the values of the world in regard to power, recognition, status, and wealth. When we understand that we are saved by sheer grace through Christ, we stop seeking salvation in these things because the cross liberates us from the bondage of material things and worldly status. The gospel, therefore, creates a whole new type of people, a whole new way of life. Racial class superiority, accumulation of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all these things are marks of living in the world and are the opposite of the mindset of the kingdom. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ died and rose for our salvation in history. The gospel is a transforming grace that changes our hearts and inmost motives. The gospel brings a new order in which believers are no longer controlled by material goods or worldly status and have solidarity with others across social barriers. The gospel is the dynamic for all heart change, life change, and social change. And change won't happen through trying harder, but only through encountering the radical grace of God. I'll close with what J.R. Tolkien said about the gospel. And we all know who he is. He's known as the father of modern fantasy literature. He wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He said, there are deep longings in the human heart that fiction cannot satisfy. He says, the reasons why we love fairy stories so much is because within them we see escape from time, deliverance from death, love that does not end, communication with non-human beings, and triumph of good over evil. As a Christian, Tolkien believed that these stories resonate so deeply within us because they bear witness to an underlying reality. Even if we do not believe that there is a God or life after death, our hearts sense somehow these things characterize life as the way it was and should eventually be. And so we are interested in these stories because we have intuitions of the creation, the fall, redemption, restoration, which again is the plot line of the Bible, and we are stirred by it. Stories capture the heart and imagination and give us a sense of joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate story. It is the story that all other stories can only point to. And, that's what, and what's so special about this, this, this story is that it's true. It's not fiction. If Jesus Christ really was who, really was who he said he was, if he really raised from the dead, if he really is the Son of God and you believe in him, then all of those longings that we most desperately yearn for will come true. We will escape time and death. We will know love without parting. We will even communicate with non-human beings and we will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories, especially the best ones, we get a temporary relief from life as we know it, where all of the longings are denied. But 
however, if the gospel is true, and it is, all of our deepest longings are fulfilled. But the gospel is not just information to retain, but an invitation to trust in Christ. How do you respond to the gospel message? Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you for your gospel, your truth, your salvation that you have provided for us. Help us to deepen our understanding of your gospel. That the implications will be played out in our lives. Help us not to be ashamed. May we be bold to proclaim your message and your truth. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.